Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. This is John Cribbs here with Chris Funderberg, and we are going to be extolling the life and work of the great Jean-Claude Carrier today. Um, Chris, I, you know, this is one that hit me, I think, even worse than it would have because you had kind of like made it a mission over the last year to kind of create more awareness of Carrier's work. You've done lots of uh, tweets and stuff of uh, his films and you know, it was always great to see you like put up a quote of his. Uh, so it's a it's a bummer that he's gone, but uh, it's a nice opportunity to kind of look back at some of the stuff that you've unearthed and uh, kind of appreciate it more. Yeah, this is um, uh, this episode. I just wanted it to be uh, talk about him a little bit because uh, he is the screenwriter who is probably the writer who's most meaningful to me in in all of human history is that too broad a statement i mean certainly most meaningful to me and um i did just to talk about what this this episode is going to be i picked uh just rather than talk about his entire career which is so wide and so varied i just wanted to pick a handful of films five movies to just sort of talk about a little bit more in depth and to help focus the conversation in some way but yeah this you know me there's always a gulf um, between me and you, where celebrity and artist deaths bum you out in a way that I think is a regular human reaction to when an artist you die like dies, you're bummed out by it. But I have a tendency to have a reaction of like, I didn't know them. You know, I like their art, but I'll save my sadness for the people I actually know and actually had a relationship to it. Which, you know, which is not to say that I don't, I'll feel sad for a couple minutes, but it, it won't disrupt my day you know it's one of those things where um art and my relationship to art exists in a fantasy space and i and i try and draw careful lines between my fantasy space and my reality but when carrier died last week it really um affected me i think part of the reason for that is it just seemed like he would never stop he has screenwriting credits from 2019 his his latest movie with uh, uh philippe garel was just released in the united states at film form maybe it has even hasn't even come out yet but it's well he was just in, super prolific prolific I mean, his entire life. kept going forever i just never thought he was just like an eternal fixture in my life the the movie and one of the five movies we'll talk about is discreet charm of the bourgeoisie is the movie that really opened the world of art cinema to me like that's the movie somehow for me and and so he's been there in my life from the beginning and like you said i always feel like he's overlooked to me he's unquestionably the greatest screenwriter who ever lived it's not just that he's most the most screenwriter is most meaningful to me personally i also think that if, as far as a body of work is concerned there's nobody who can compare to him uh I think that's in part because normally when writers are as good as him, they make the transition to directing and become better known as directors. You sort of don't get the opportunity to be as good as he was for as long as he was without being promoted up to producer or director. Uh, well, that's something I think that's really unique to him. He seemed to not kind of want that level of fame. I mean, he seemed perfectly happy with making something better you know, being, you know, kind of coming onto a project and just making it as good as it could be. And then kind of stepping back, he has lots of quotes about 
letting the director kind of take over at a certain point. But I think it's unquestionable. If you look at the kind of films he, he worked on and the kind of directors that he worked with, it's always just this high level of quality. And he's obviously enriching these screenplays and these films and these plays that he worked on uh, that so that people, you know, would literally seek him out to make their project better. Yeah. And he was happy within that role. Let's take a step back and explain who he was. He was a, a French uh, screenwriter uh, who was born in the 1930s. Um, he started out uh, making films with Pierre Attacks, uh, uh, who is a, he and Attacks are essentially the, the most close alkalites of Jacques Tati. Attacks was an illustrator and poster designer for Tati. Uh, Carrière wrote the novelizations of Tati's films and they made a series of movies in the early 60s, uh, a few of which the shorts Carrière co-directed that are very Tati-esque movies. Although I would say that they're, we'll get into it because another one of my picks is these movies. I'd say they're a lot more human and accessible. Tati's movies are very droll and dry and there's a, there's a fundamental inhumanity to that Hulot character is that he doesn't act like a relatable person at all. He's incredibly aloof, whereas Attack's characters have a tendency to be um, charmingly human in a way. Uh, And then from there, he, uh, right after that, in the mid-60s, he teamed up with Louis Boonwell uh, for Diary of a Chambermaid, adapting Octave Mirbeau's book, Diary of a Chambermaid. And he is most associated with Boonwell. He wrote uh, virtually all of the late period French Boonwell films that that I think Boonwell is best known for at this point. Uh, he wrote Belle de Jour, he wrote Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, he wrote Phantom of Liberty, he wrote um, the uh, That Obscure Object of Desire. Yeah, the only one he didn't doesn't have a credit on is Tristana. Tristana, which is the one that was uh, made in sort of an international co-production that that probably shouldn't be lumped in with the French Boonwells, even though it is in many other ways. I always think that he had something to do with it because he has a story specifically about uh, getting together with Boonwell in Toledo for a while, which is, of course, where they shot yes. that film. Yes, it's strange. He also, at the same time, teams up with... Um, in the same time period with Louis Malle. Uh, he does Thief of Paris and Viva Maria in that same time frame. And Louis Malle is somebody that he returns to and collaborates with uh, virtually his entire, uh, virtually all of all of Malle's life. They, they make May Fools together in 1990, I think is the last one they do together. And from, from that point, he also makes a Jess Franco movie in that, in that time period, Diabolical Dr. Z. Um, at that point, he just becomes a working screenwriter and he works with so many people. He works with Milos Forman several times. He works with Volker Schlondorf uh, several times. He makes Passion with Godard in 1982. He works with Vita a few times, uh, most notably with Danton. He works with Philippe Garel a lot as well. He also does these more straight genre movies with Jacques Deray, like uh, Borsellino and Outside Man. Um, and he works with just so many 
different people in different ways. He does an adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac. He does an adaptation of um, Dangerous Liaisons, Valmont with Foreman in, uh, in 1989. He, uh, he wrote The Return of Martin Gary, wrote The Ten Drum, um, and he continues on through the 90s uh, and into the new century and, and into the new century. You know, he makes Chinese Box with Wayne Wang in 1997. He does Birth with Jonathan Glazer, who made Under the Skin in 2004. He makes more movies with Foreman and Schlondorf in, in the, after the turn of the century and keeps on going. He makes a movie with Julian Schnabel in 2018. And he, he really worked with so many of the most interesting directors of that time period. He did a movie with, with, Osa, uh, with Nagisa Oshima in 1986 called Max Monomor. That's extremely weird. It's the one where uh, Charlotte Rampling fucks a chimp. It's about she's got a chimp boyfriend that she's cheating on her husband with. That's a literal chimp. Um, and that's his career in a nutshell is that it's incredibly expansive. It begins in the early sixties. It goes through this year, basically. And it's, that's his film career. Now, like most yes. people could like retire as a legend for just co-writing discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Right. But he works on all these films and in his spare time, he's doing plays with Peter Brook. He's doing books with the Dalai Lama. Uh, and Umberto point, Echo. Yeah, at one point he's the president of uh, La Famille, right? The film school in, yes. in France. He writes about uh, science and technology, as you said, with Umberto Eco. Uh, he has just got his hands. He wrote. He's so a novelist. Many. He wrote these extremely popular Frankenstein continuation novels. We covered one of them on a different podcast. He's he does so much. There is there is it's it's the writer's dream in some way his career is that you are just constantly writing every different kind of creative fiction there is to write and you're having conversations with interesting people and you're just doing it all it's it's the most dream writer's life uh, in some way. He ghost wrote uh, My Last Sigh or co-wrote My Last Sigh, Louis Boonwell's autobiography. Uh, just everything. He co-wrote a book uh, with the Dalai Lama. You know, he's he's a very uh, just knowledgeable, well-respected, curious person um, uh, who just experienced so much. And one of the, the key quotes from him is that he talks about there's all these different ways for a screenwriter to work. And he says, my method is to always work with the director. And that's something else that needs to be pointed out. The standard format for what they would do is they'd sit around, he would go and meet with a director and they would work together for some number of weeks, four to six weeks. They would just you know, full work day, eight hours a day, 10 hours a day together, sit and work on the scripts. Then he would go off by himself for a couple of weeks and return with the first draft and they continue working on it. One of the things that's interesting about Carrière as a worker, as a screenwriter, is that he shares co-writer credit with so many of the directors he works with. You know, he shares co-writer credit with Philip Kaufman on Unbearable Lightness of Being. He shares co-writer credit with Boone Well on a bunch of those films. He shares co-writer credit, you know, with Volker Schlondorfer and so many of their movies together, which is rare. And the reason that happens is because of his method of working with the director. Um, I also think it shows that directors are just fucking credit hogs 
that they don't actually deserve co-writing credits in a lot of those <laughs> circumstances, that his process was probably not substantially different from the writing process of other writers. Yeah, but I, I love, though, that he has this close collaboration with directors because I think uh, just from interviews, it gives it obviously gave him an opportunity to kind of be more invested in the, the creative development of the film. Another thing that he did, he was an illustrator. And he yeah. talks about, you know, practically storyboarding the tin drum so that Schlondorf took set design and costume ideas and looks of characters, specifically from drawings that he was doing as they were developing the screenplay. So he was actually kind of creating the world of the film, the visual world of the film, by working that closely with the director from the beginning. Yes. And there's also things that are consistent uh, enough across his movies, like switches between color and black and white that happen in a bunch of different films that he wrote that leads me to believe that a lot of the stylistic decisions uh, he made uh, in the script ended up in the movies. But there's also, that actually reminds me of a quote um, where he talks about the difference between working with Godard and Boonwell, where uh, he says that Godard doesn't like a script he likes to talk a lot, but also to have some pieces of his dialogue, some pieces of dialogue in his pocket just in case. Boonwell liked to everything to be put in the script except the technical. The word camera was prohibited in our scripts, right? And I think that that speaks to what he says about his method is always to work with the director. But I think that there are some directors he sits down with, he talks about writing, uh, with with Milos Forman and how w Milos Forman wouldn't let him write anything down unless they were sure it was the idea they wanted to go with. Whereas other directors wanted him to just produce reams of papers I of ideas that they could then sift through again. Yeah, with Forman, he said he had to hide the papers, which is great. Yes. Um, another great quote, uh, working with directors, he says, uh, we should talk about the image we have of the scene. I cover up the page and I ask Louis, say, what side's the door on? And he'll say, the left. What side the lamp? The right. Everything always coincides. It's all so extraordinary. We find we've been working with the same mental image of the scene, which is amazing. That's incredible. It's incredible. I think also people, he conflicts with that the popular, you know, the like mank cliche of the screenwriter in conflict with the director of the screenwriter is somehow having his vision undermined by the director. He also has the quote, I don't have it in front of me of a um, novel is, is an ending, a script is a beginning, where I think for him, the script doesn't actually matter that the film is what he's trying to get to with this stuff. Uh, that is what he's trying to find. And I think a lot of screenwriters have the attitude of, I wrote the perfect script and then it got fucked up. That's a sentiment you could never see coming out of Carrier. You know, just the idea that I had this great script and it got ruined is so antithetical to his worldview of how art is created. Um, that it's it's hard to uh, imagine uh, him uh, kind of falling into those cliches of the standard screenwriter. And he's he's very open. Another script, another quote by him that that I always liked uh, is that um, you're in trouble. The I'm paraphrasing this. You're in trouble the moment you think you know how to write a script. Every script must be the first one. That's yeah. I love and, that quote. 
That is the best writing advice I ever got. I never learned how to write until like a couple years ago. I would say I was 39 before I learned how to actually start screenwriting. And just now I'm, I'm actually able to write, I would say. And that, that is such an incredible piece of advice because one, one of the strangest experiences I had is the first time I ever wrote a feature that I was very satisfied with. I tried to remember what I had done when I went to write the next one. Like, what was my process? Let's repeat my process for that because it worked out so well. That, that one came out good. You know, I sold that one. Let me fucking do that again. And it, and it created a bad script like I knew I was in the middle of writing a bad script I thought I guess that was a fluke I guess I didn't make progress as an artist and then I saw that quote and I was like oh of course and I let go of all of these things I had learned all of these solutions I had learned before and started over with the correct approach and again he talks about there's a great Joe Morganson profile of him from I think 88 it's right around the Valmont unbearable lightness of being time where he's talking about um, he just goes through every possibility for a scene with a director where they sit there and their assistant says that Carrier is a bullfighter where he's coming at the director with all of these different ideas until the director is exhausted and Carrier can get what he wants. And Carrier says, no, what's happening there is I don't know the solution and we're going through everything until we find the correct one. That And that's always a useful thing to do when you're thinking about a script is to come up with I've written the scene this way. What are a hundred different ways this scene could go? What are a hundred different possibilities to resolve this scene? How many of I can I think of? And I go until I'm exhausted. And I find if I do that, you eventually find something. You either go, no, I had the right thing, or you find something better. It seems very logical when you phrase it like that, but it's amazing how few people do that when trying to write of just let's go through as many possibilities as possible. There's another thing I love, the story about discrete charm of the bourgeoisie. And let's talk about the first one. These five movies will go straight into discrete charm of the bourgeoisie. This ties directly into it where they, it was, they had the title, the blank charm of the bourgeoisie, and they knew it needed an adjective, right? But they didn't know what it was. So they just kept applying every single word they could think of in front of uh, charm before they arrived at discreet. And then you hear it and you're like, yeah, you've, that's perfect title. That's such a good title. It says everything about this movie. And you try and imagine it with other adjectives and how much, you know, how much they affect it. You know, the oily charm that, you know, the brittle charm, the uh, repulsive charm, all these different words that you're trying to imagine in there and how they impact the film. Um, and, but he said they went through like thousands of adjectives, just like <laughs> everything they could think of. They were, you know, the table charm of the, you know, just like looking at what's in front of them, you know, Kaiser Soze style, <laughs> the froggy bathroom charm of the discreet of the bourgeoisie. That's great. Um, yeah, discreet charm. Uh, we, we talked about it recently, just about two weeks ago about what an uh, important movie this was for both of us. Uh, and his collaboration with Boone Well, who he said, uh, we've had more than 2,000 meals together, which I think is amazing. We were like an old uh, married couple is the end of that. It's so nice. <laughs> it's it's great. Uh, but I want to take this opportunity just to say, you know, he's, uh, so as we said at this point, he's a French screenwriter. He's worked with Pierre Atex and uh, his collaboration his with Boone friend. Well. 
They're like right, buddies. Right, right. Like it's it's when you make your first movies with like your bud is what the Pierre attacks thing is. Yeah. But so he hooks up with Boonwell. And this is the first of, you know, just just another thing to say about Carrier is that he works with this Spanish artist and filmmaker like Boonwell. And he'll go on to work with German filmmakers, Polish filmmakers, American filmmakers. You know, I mean, he just has no borders of this guy. I mean, he can just, you know, move from one thing to another. Um, but what he... He came at a discreet charm specifically as a fan of Boone Well and said, I love what you did with um, repetition in uh, movies like uh, the Exterminating Angel and things like that. We should we should make that our focus. And so, of course, the idea behind uh, discreet charm became a meal that these guys can never have. They keep trying to have a meal and it's unsuccessful. And from there. They developed the idea of these dreams coming into things and then sort of the loose narrative of one character kind of moving into another one, which will almost become the staple of their work together um, and moved from there. I love that he kind of came at this as someone who said, I understand you, Boonwell. And sure enough, when they when he proposed to him after Boonwell had sort of retired as a filmmaker and said, let's do a book, let's do your autobiography, which Boonwell was like, no, I don't want to do that. He was someone who said, I know him. I knew him so well. I could write whole chapters and bring it to him. And he would say, it's like, it's like, I wrote this. It's like, you know, yeah, I, it was so close to it because he just understood the artist so well. And that's how, why they collaborated so well together. Yes. And the, the plot of discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, as you describe is very simple in some way. There's a group of bourgeoisie of, of rich friends who, keep trying to get together for dinner and failing in some way. Either there's a mistake between them about what night the dinner was scheduled for, or they go to a small restaurant and there's a funeral being held in the back because one of the proprietors has died, or the military shows up and, uh, you know, uh, seizes the house control of the house just all of these or they're interrupted by a soldier who tells them the story of their dream and it's extremely unappetizing uh in some way there's just all of these different things that interrupt it and there's really no story to it beyond that and that is um one of those things that when you describe it this sounds like a very simple idea but to make this idea good, let alone brilliant and perfect like this movie is, this, this is probably uh, my personal favorite movie of all time. I mean, it's hard for me to play favorites. This movie is the lodestar of my cinematic life. It's the biggest thing. It's the keystone to, to my personality in some ways. It's so big in my life. And it seems like you could do something like that, but writing something like this is so incredibly difficult. And as much as I admire the Boonwell films that are on its wavelength before Boonwell hooks up with Carrier, like um, Exterminating Angel is probably the one that's closest to the late uh, French work. It's, they're not as good uh, of scripts as when he works with Carrier, you know? I think that the Absolutely. scripts get better and to pull this off is um, so unbelievably astounding 
It's just to make this work. It sounds so simple and it's something every writer thinks they can do until they try and do something like this and see that the results are terrible and uncreative and not nearly as good, not compelling. They're boring. They're not eerie. They're not evocative. It runs out of steam. They have no sense of pace or timing because you can't structure the plot according to traditional screenwriting tricks, you know, that each individual uh, scene has to stand on its own. And I think that's a credit to Carrier's method where he is finding the best thing for each individual scene that he is constantly solving all of the narrative problems as best he can. And I also think with this movie that, let me ask you this, what do you think of this movie's politics? Because it gets presented as this scathing indictment of the idle rich. And I was just wondering if you think that's true or not, or if you think, what do you think is going on with this film? I don't think that it is any kind of a scathing indictment necessarily of the rich. I think that it's, very hip to just sort of the human hypocrisies that live in all of us. And I think these characters specifically are driven by very human things like lust, you know, and, and, and appetite and, um, and just uh, motivations that are misunderstood. My favorite uh, part is probably uh, the dinner that's uh, confused when uh, the couple who invite everybody go out to, to have sex outside and everyone thinks that it's a revolution is happening and they got to get out of there or like, or that they're all about to be arrested yeah, because of the uh, terrible things that they've done. Um, You know, I, that kind of scene is a perfect example of it's not because they're rich that this is happening. It's just because it just in a group, any group, you know, you're going to have interesting run-ups between uh, communication and understanding and every single scene is kind of based on that. I love it. I love the uh, I love the horror aspect of it. You know, the the uh, fantasy scenes that are the dreams that are interspersed in between uh, that give it almost a spirituality. That's more my spirituality than I think any religion could ever be. This idea just of memories of my mother. I had a dream about my mother, uh, and would you know inform the autobiography when Boonwell and Carrier would sit down to write it. That's just such a Boonwellian sort of thing but like you said I think Carrier enriches everything because he focuses on what's sort of the objective of this scene what are we going to focus on and what and it's not plot based it's not driven by we need to get from this scene to the next scene it's all just taking time and focusing on what's happening at the moment which is you know not enough films do in my opinion yes I also, there's a great, um, in the Criterion edition, Carlos Fuentes, the great, the great writer, the great novelist, Carlos Fuentes, uh, has uh, a, an essay where he talks about um, how you're not supposed to, and you cannot altogether hate the stupid, avaricious people in the discreet charm. Their dreams are too funny. They are endowed with a reluctantly charming dimension. They are doomed, yet they survive. And I think that it's not enough to say that this movie is sympathetic to them. That's not 
true, the way it humanizes them and wins you over is the way humor functions, which is their dreams and desires are recognizable. I think that's one of the cruel jokes about this film. And one of its themes is that the wealthy and the powerful are just as much uh, slaves to their desires and their humanity as the impoverished, that the dreams of those in Los Olvidados, his famous, Boonwell's famous film about Mexican street children, their dreams and desires are identical to the dreams and desires of those in discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. And I think that that the way the humor functions is it's not about like making them sympathetic or something as simplistic as that. It's exactly that Fuentes line. You can't hate them because their dreams are too charming. They're too human, you know, that, that the human experience is in even them, even as it's drilling a lot of its comedy from their avarice and lust and stupidity and mean-spiritedness and selfishness, that it's not out to get them. And I think it's also worth remembering that Boonwell himself was from an aristocratic background, more or less, that he was from a powerful landowning family in an incredibly impoverished area. And that Boonwell is certainly not making a movie that's uh, empty hypocrisy or about hating himself. And I think that Boonwell, uh, that Carrier script, walks a really interesting line uh, about what it wants to say, that it's more complicated than if those revolutionaries, you know, if that student revolutionary just gets in there and kills Fernando Ray's character, that'll be a victory. You know, that there's something much stranger happening in this film and with humanity. I think that humanity is stranger than politics led on most of the time. I think that politics is a reduction of humanity. And we'll see that in Unbearable Lightness of Being when we talk about that later in other Carrier script that's about uh, how idle thoughts and capricious decisions get weaponized against people in the in under the Russian oppression during the Soviet uh, occupation of the of the Czech Republic. Um, that that's a theme that Carrier continues over, that his sense of politics and the meaning of politics, again, you see it in May Fools with Louis Ma, which is about the family, the rich family that's forced to flee their home during the, the student uh, uh, revolution, student, I don't even know, all these words are politicized, rebellion, riots, insurrection, protest, pick whichever word for those is least offensive to you and use that word in your mind. Pretend like I said, the one that doesn't upset you for what happened in 1968 in France. And, um, and the same thing, they're forced to flee their home and they're not quite bad people. They're not undeserving people. They're also absurd people. They're also charming people. And I think you see that frequently in Carrier where uh, politics, the, the kind of idea of the personal is political as a destructive force, as a sort of violently degrading system. And so well, he definitely aligns those ideas with what I think Boonwell thinks of religion, which, you know, isn't necessarily, you know, to indict the whole of, you know, 
religious belief and spirituality, but rather to just point out that there are going to be obvious hypocrisies within the structure and the system. The, the, the priest who decides he wants to be a gardener and gets kicked out of the mansion when he comes in dressed in overalls, yes. uh, you know, and then when he comes back and dresses a priest and is like, hey, am I okay now? Do you like me now? And they're like, oh shit, sorry. <laughs> right. Are we going to hell now? What's the, what's the deal? That kind of stuff is brilliant. And I think it aligns with the ideas about politics in this movie. Let me ask you about um, the cutaways, right? To the people walking down the road, the main characters walking down the road. There's nothing like that, I think, in any other Boonwell film. This had to have been uh, an idea that I think Carrier probably put forward. And like all of his collaborations, I think is probably something that came out of that writing process, that visual idea uh, of them uh, kind of going on the road to nowhere, as it were. Yeah, I think that that's what it is. It's one of those things where they must have been searching for the perfect image and then found it and never worried themselves about working it into uh, the script. You know, the other quote from him is, uh, he used to say, Boonwell, that the world is led by the irrational. And I think that having uh, an ability to accept irrationality uh, is something that, Carrier is up for. And I think that knowing that that, that image can be necessarily uh, irrational in some way is also what makes it perfect. It, it sort of, it has a, a thematic harmonic convergence with uh, whatever Boonwell's trying to accomplish, that you can just have this thing that feels right and i don't want to overinterpret it it is a road to nowhere but humanity is also on a road to nowhere you know you born and you die to uh think that you're doing something other than walking along is some sort of self-deception but also you know taking a nice walk is nice looking good is nice uh <laughs> to try and press it too hard into a metaphor it's not a foreboding scene it's a very uh or desperate scene it's a very casual, pleasant cutaway. There's a strange quality to it uh, that that sort of returns, it takes the heaviness away from the story and makes it light again. I, I think that that as, again, like an unbearable lightness of being, Carrier understands the tension between the heaviness of life and the lightness of life, of the life is so light, it's just going to float away from us and we never are able to do any more than sketch it out versus the total heaviness of life, which pulls us down no matter what we want to do. We can't get away from it. Yeah, especially as the structure breaks down, you know, this idea of I come here to have lunch. That's what's on my schedule. And then it never arrives. How it throws these characters into this kind of subtle chaos is sort of the whole point of the film, right? The idea that everything that they've kind of based their lives on is slowly being kind of stripped away from them in a way that is going to create this lightness, which they don't know what to do with. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and there's also, you know, I think that also that reminds me of the, the other quote from him where he was talking about, I think he was talking about when they wrote Phantom of Liberty, uh, which is an even more uh, narratively unmoored and impressionistic story, he says, when a good idea occurs, it has been prepared by a long time of reflection, but you have to be patient. We all have what I call the invisible worker inside ourselves. We don't have to feed him or pay him, and he works even when we are sleeping. 
we must be aware of his presence and from time to time stop thinking about what we are trying to do, stop being obsessed about answers and just give him the room, the possibility to do his work. He is tenacious, you see, he never loses hope. And I think that stuff like the image of them walking down the street, if you ask Carrier, he might point to the little man, you know, who is always working inside of us. It's interesting to think about discrete charm too. You know, his legacy is tied so tightly to Boone Wells that I think, like you said before, if this is the only thing he had ever written, he'd be a legend. You know, if that was the only screenwriting credit you ever have, you he would be in conversation for one of the, the great screenwriters just to have done this and pulled it off. And then he makes several more. He does Phantom of Liberty, which is even more uh, aggressively experimental in its narrative forms. He does The Milky Way, which is uh, sort of synthesizes the ideas in some way between uh Discreet Charm and um, and and uh, and Phantom of Liberty, although it predates both of them, I think it's sort of what he's working towards. And he also does Belle de Jour. I mean, Belle de Jour is one that you and I both like a lot, but I know for a lot of people is like the big Boonwell and the really towering Boonwell achievement. Uh, it would be remiss to to not mention his involvement, and that's the very first one he does. But that's a more regular film, also. That's that's a very straight ahead film in some in some ways. It's obviously sure. the three adaptations that they do are a little more straightforward. Um, and Bill DeJour, I guess, it's not technically an adaptation, but apparently it came from stories of a real life uh, daytime prostitute. So yes, kind of taken from an actual source and uh, diary of a chambermaid. Um, being the other one and uh, the obscure object of desire coming from novels specifically. Yes. And, a little bit more of a story going on with them. Yeah. And Diary of a Chambermaid is one of his, it's his first collaboration with Boone Well. It's one of his first real things he writes that he's not just doing with his buddy attacks. And it's um, again shows he also has an incredible talent for adaptation and I'd like to move into the next movie I want to talk about, which is The Unbearable Lightness of Being from 1988 with Philip Kaufman. Before and, you do it, I just want to mention how oh, yeah. he, immediately, he immediately went over Boonwell in his interview by Boonwell. The first question he asked him, do you know this? Yeah, do you drink wine? And he said, I'm from a family of inters. Yes. And he also <laughs> said that he felt like if the answer was no, the interview would have ended right then and there, that they wouldn't, sure have, would have. <laughs> wouldn't have been uh, able to go forward anymore. But I, I guess also I was talking about the Boonwell connection that's so tight because he's associated with Boonwell so closely um, that it's easy to lose sight of what a small fraction of his career that is, that that's actually a really small fraction of, of what he did as well. Mm -hmm. sure. um, and those are because those are such towering achievements. I mean, Belle de Jour, Discreet Charm, Phantom Liberty and Obscure Object of Desire. That's that's an incredible uh, just collection of work and ideas. And I think it kind of sets his reputation too. I think other directors seek him out because they know those films and they're like, I want to work with that writer who created those films specifically, you know. But then he never, because he works with the directors, he never reproduces it again. Right, sure. Um, well, he yeah. always does something more tailored to the directors themselves. Um, Unbearable Lightness of Being is one I wanted to talk about because the novelist who's most important to me 
most meaningful to me is Milan Kundera. He's, he's unquestionably the author I've read most and has impacted my life the most. If, if Carrier is the screenwriter and the film person who's impacted me the most, Kundera, again, my, my philosophies and who I am is, is so intertwined with Kundera and what I learned from him, how formative he was for me, that it's, it's hard to think of myself without that in my life. And having them come together with a director I really, really love in Philip Kaufman uh, is, is really fascinating to see. That's, that's a team up that makes so much sense because uh, Carrier has specialized at making these unadaptable books into screenplays with the Tin Drum, uh, the, the Proust movie that he does with Schlondorf, kind of removing the Proust from uh, In yeah. Search of Lost Time. And then the, the nine-hour stage production he does of the, um, of the Mahapaharta, you know, I mean, these things are un, untouchable. Even, even Diary of a Chambermaid is yeah. a very hard thing to adapt. Incredibly hard. Um, but he teams up with Kaufman, who's done The Wanderers and The Right Stuff, and will do Henry in June. He also loves taking on these very challenging literary adaptations. Yes, I would say that Kaufman is underappreciated as a director because his genius is for adaptation. Even Invasion of the Body Snatchers is an adaptation of pre-existing material and that nobody takes a pre-existing thing and turns it into a film better than Philip Kaufman. There are probably better directors, but he takes uh, things that are incredibly difficult to make striking original works out of and make striking original works out of them. And so bringing him to this book, which a lot of people, you know, uh, filed this book away as an unadaptable novel, you know, it's written in 84, I think, and there's immediate interest in it because it's excellent. And uh, I think a lot of the idea is that it's going to be very hard to adapt. And even just describing the plot, which is you have a young doctor who's a womanizer who's seeing two women. One is Sabina, who's a free-spirited artist, and one is Teresa, who's a more provincial uh, young woman from a small Czech town. He meets her in a spa town where he's gone to perform a brain surgery. And she's supposed to just be another one of his conquests, but she uh, attaches herself to him and sort of makes him love her in some way. And the tension is uh, between, basically between Teresa and Thomas, but there's so many different sections of the book. I believe it's, it's either seven or nine sections in the book and each one focuses on a different character and a different perspective in it. And it's a lot of theoretical, philosophical musings and sort of ironic humor and very digressive and a lot of analysis of characters in an intellectualized way and um, uh, just a lot of stuff that it's very unclear how it would make it to the screen uh, in some fundamental way. I should also say it's a weird thing as much as I love Kundera, like I've read Laughable Loves or Book of Laughter and Forgetting those books like 15, 20 times at this point. I've only read Unbearable Lightness once because it was so, it impacted me so much. There's, I've always had a sense that I'm waiting to read it again when I need it. And I don't know if that makes sense, but I it don't want to. It does. Yeah. It's the reason I didn't see the movie until this week. I mean, this is, I'm a huge Philip Kaufman fan, obviously a huge Carrier fan, Juliet Binoche, Lena Olin. 
Laszlo Zabo, I love the people who made this movie. And I was, I, I just, I couldn't imagine the book outside of the book at all. I wouldn't care who made it. I just wanted to kind of have that book, keep that experience as the only version of the story I ever saw, which now seems ludicrous now that I've seen the movie and thought it was brilliant. But I, I understand that feeling of I resisted of having it too. this isolated idea yeah. of the book. Yeah. yeah, until Terrence Rafferty has a great, piece on it that makes a really great argument for it. And that's what caused me to, to break down and see it finally. I had avoided it too, just because I didn't, it's not that I didn't think it would be good. I love Kaufman and Carriere as well. It was just, it was just, I don't need it more than anything. Yeah. You know? And I think that it is amazing what he does with it. And it's hard to identify how it works it's almost magical that he gets it to work in some way. He doesn't imitate the book. At the beginning, there's a couple literary nods where there are title cards that are like, and Thomas was loved by our time. And there was one woman who knew Thomas, understood Thomas better than any other, Sabina. There's just a few brief title cards like that at the beginning that give it a quick literary flavor, but it doesn't lean into that. It doesn't attempt to literally reproduce the more literary aspects of the novel. Instead, it tries to reproduce tonally somehow the literary aspects of the novel. And I think a lot of that is in Philip Kaufman's direction, but I also think it's in a lot of selections for what Carrier is very good at identifying which metaphors will instantly translate to the screen, like the metaphors of the mirrors and the camera, uh, the mirror, you know, the hat, the beds that he says, okay, there are these metaphors that loom large in the book and I don't need to explain them the way the book does. I can have them be visual presences, but yeah, you, what you want to, you want to contribute, jump on in, John, you're allowed to interrupt me. What they've done with it is made it absolutely cinematic. Yes. It's all about observing and reacting in a way that the book isn't in the, the way the book is leisurely and kind of taking one thing at a time. It really reinterprets it as the story of these characters, but told through parallels and sharing the story in a way that the book doesn't allow them to. It really just sort of takes the chapters and kind of meshes them together in an interesting way. Um, and of course, you know, the use of, you know, black and white, and like, as you said, the, the, uh, the titles and the narration, uh, everything that they do with it feels uh you can tell that it comes from a book but at the same time it's rendered in a way that is purely cinematic yes there's also an interesting thing that i think a lot about with kundera that this movie um improves upon which is that look there's a line in um I think it's an unbearable lightness where he's talking about having sex and he says he's driven wild by the eye of her rump, right? And he's talking about he's fucking her doggy style and sees her asshole and he's like, oh my God, this is awesome, right? There's no way to write that and have it be as impactful as just seeing Lena Olin on screen. Like you will be driven wild by seeing Lena Olin and Juliet Binoche on screen or Daniel Day-Lewis, if you're a woman, in a way you won't be, or a non, you know, non-hetero man, uh, in a way you won't be um, by reading this ever. 
you know? And I think that that's something that Carrier is very good at uh, in writing scripts that are sexy without being horny, which is incredibly fucking hard to do, is that most times when dudes write scripts and writes movies you can feel like the horny guy behind them who's really turned on by what he's writing and you feel that even in Kundera and you don't in Carrier's script there's a weird way in which um Belle de Jour is strangely sexless you'd almost want to say except that it's super sexy at the same time. And that's what I mean is it doesn't have this puerile, stupid horniness to it. It doesn't feel, the scripts don't feel overwhelmed and controlled by their sexuality. They don't feel slave to their sexuality and overwhelmed by it while not shying away from it, you know, in some yeah. way. Is that it feels very, uh, it feels, it just it feels better than it does in, in, in the book. And it's something that's a bit of carrier specialty. Viva Maria has a huge amount of that as well. The movie he made with, with um, Louis Mal and Jean Maron, Brigitte Bardot, the same thing where it's, they're very sexy, you know, and this is a hard thing. It's even hard to talk about. Like you, there's no way for a middle-aged dude talking about a movie and talking about sexy versus horny and have it to sound any different than saying eye of the rump. You know what I mean? But the film knows how to do it very well. And part of that is we should talk about the casting some where Juliette Binoche is phenomenal in this movie she is between this and blue in that same time period it's just there's no question she's one of the greatest actresses of her generation like that's it it's and, funny to think of a time of a time in her career where she played the demure one yes you know? and like the young naif right right and also um lena olin is not a phenomenal actress but she's perfectly cast and that lena olin sex bomb energy that gets used in like Romeo is bleeding is the only other time it gets used to its fullest extent is used here. And so she's incredibly impactful. She's perfect for this role. The, the weak link like it, it generally is, is Daniel Day-Lewis and his fucking, you know, he's just the biggest ham in the world. And this Count Chocula accent just gets an, <laughs> I want you to take off your clothes, blah, blah. You know, he on set, you know, on set, he made, he made the crew refer to him as Count Chocula. Did you know that, John, on set of this movie? At, at night, he slept in a cereal box. That's how dedicated he was to creating uh, playing, this character. Playing Tomash, as they say it with Tomash. the Asian. No, I know people love him. I, I find that method acting like his produces really hammy performances and he's the wink link in this movie i, I think I if you watch agree. this movie yeah. you go oh i wish they had cast somebody really good in that role to the extent that you that can't movie. help but think like wow they've done a good job ditching daniel day lewis for a while in this stretch of the film yes and he just gets blown off the screen by juliette binoche but again i think that's to the movie's advantage her heaviness and the way she's like a a gravity spot she's a black hole that pulls the whole movie towards her is perfect for that character as well um and and you know and he's not he doesn't come close to ruining the movie or anything he's just like given a b minus c plus kind of performance in a, in a movie where everything around him is a a plus level is is all it is and look like 
listener who's getting angry and made fun of Daniel Day-Lewis. Don't worry, you don't have to defend a multimillionaire who's the most respected actor of his generation. You don't need to rush to his defense there. He'll be just <laughs> fine without you getting angry at a podcast that 2,000 people are going to listen Yeah, we're to. talking about the movie that the screenplay got nominated for an Oscar, not Daniel Day-Lewis for a change. <laughs> yes. Um, but one of the other things... The beautiful cinematography, too. Sven Nyquist is amazing. Sven Nyquist, it's gorgeous looking. And again, it's finding the right image. That opening shot that's just the wall with the title of the film on it, like that reddish, rusty reddish wall. And you go, that must be in Carrier's script because it's such a perfect tone setter and it's unrelated to anything else it's just they found this perfect image somehow uh to put the titles over and just set the tone for the entire thing and also the fade to white at the end it doesn't fade to black it fades to white and that's one of the things i love terence rafferty compares it to when you get to the end of a book and you look at that blank page past where the writing is stopped and just hold it in your hand while you're thinking about the book. It has that quality to it. And it feels yeah. like the fade to white must be in the script. You know, it just feels too perfect for it. Yeah. And the perfect understanding too of European politics from the era and the way that it contrasts with these characters, you know, their, their, their passion is in direct contrast to the, the, the coldness of the, in the loss of individuality that's sort of becoming the, the norm in this, you know, at this time and place, uh, you feel Kaufman, who, you know, is, you know, an American guy and makes American movies, American set films, really got access to that uh, aspect of Kundera's story through Carrier specifically. Yeah. His, and his the, understanding of these kind of things. Yeah. And what the story is, is you have this, this love triangle where uh, the Russians invade what's called Czechoslovakia at the time in 1968. And the three uh, flee to Geneva, Switzerland, the three of them separate. Sabina goes by herself and then Tomas and Teresa flee together to, to Geneva. Uh, and Teresa is so unhappy in, in Geneva, she returns to, to the small town where they're from, or Prague. They're from Prague, actually. What am I mm -hmm. saying? Small town. They return to Prague and Tomas misses her so much, he returns to, uh, what's to Prague her, to wait, be with what's her. What's her exact line there? Is it from the Kundera where she says... I'm weak, so I'm going back to the home of the week. Is that the what you Yes, said? so I returned to the home of the week. Also, yes. the great line of, uh, in Prague, I was dependent on your love. In Geneva, I am dependent on you for everything. So that's mm. why she's got to leave him. And Sabina goes to sunny SoCal. She, she heads out. There's a, there's a nice, the, one of the great decisions that Carrier makes is Franz, this character who falls in love with her and leaves his wife for her and comes to live with her to find her apartment empty, right? Because Sabina's always leaving. That's what she's like to do. <laughs> Carrier cuts the entire section with this karate doctor who goes and gets killed in Bangkok after participating in a meanless protest march to the Cambodian border. All of that is cut. Franz, Franz is focused down to just what we need. It's it's the weakest section in, um, in the book. Because... Which is impressive to have cut scenes from a 200-page novel and has still have a three-hour movie out of it. Yeah. Yes, to cut entire sections from yeah. it, this entire character. And it's also the section where Kundera clearly holds the character and his beliefs in a little bit of contempt, too. I think it's, mm. it's the section where Kundera does not have a lot of respect for Franz, uh, which, is, which is a very uncarrier-esque 
quality. I think Carrier is incapable of writing characters he dislikes. His films are absent villains most of the time, and they're even absent people who are used as as punchlines. He manages to find likable qualities in people that are presented as overtly unlikable by the narrative in some way. Yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, we're about to get to Volker Spengler in The Ogre, which is the most yeah. delightful performance of a horrible human being I've ever seen. But yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Or the or the drunk lady in The Suitor that he's first mm-hmm. going to date where you, you're like, oh, she's I, <laughs> the worst. And then I a little her. while later, yeah, a while later, like, <laughs> she's my favorite character in the movie. You know, I think that that Carrier does that uh, quite a bit. So I think he has no use for Franz for, for that reason. Mm, okay. um, mm. I do also love how when uh, Lena, when Sabina meets him and she doesn't seem that interested and then he's like, I take trains everywhere I go. And she's like, really? Like she wants to fuck him because <laughs> he rides trains. I really <laughs> enjoy trains. I enjoy that. Well, that's a, something that's in Kundera's books that I think he um, is not one of my favorite aspects of it, where he's interested in the comedic aspects of sex, like the I'm Bobby Fisher scene in Book of Laughter and Forgetting, or in um, Slowness, where they're like doing the fake humping by the pool to try and impress everybody who's cheering. Um, Carrier gets it, though. The, the comedy works in the sex scenes in these movies without undermining it at all and without... there's a sweetness to it again there's like a generosity to it i I guess i would use the word humor more than comedy but again you've got to remember that carrier comes out of a comedy writing background at the beginning he comes out of jacques cati when after um and because tomash has written a article that the russians that the soviets don't like he's demoted from brain surgeon to like clinic doctor to window washer because he won't write this letter retracting what he's written Um, there's a bit where he's working as a window washer and can't get the window clean. And that's a total carrier invention. And it's something straight out of an attacks movie where it's just, he's trying to get the smudge off and can't do it. And it's, it's pure carrier that just shows up in it. He's just got such a deft hand with comedy and the scene when Tamash first, uh, seduces Teresa and gives her the, I'm a doctor. You're going to need to take off your shirt. Uh, you know, because um, because what what Tomash does is he always commands women take off your clothes when he gets them alone, and and it's like the magic word that he knows always works for them. That if you just say it with seriousness, you can cut through all of the rest of the seduction, and get to the end. But it doesn't work with Teresa; she's too inherently modest. So he does this whole bit with her, but where he's like looking in her eye and stuff. It's such great. And again, that's all like Carrier invention. That's just all straight something, uh, something straight out of Carrier's physical comedy. Yeah. It's a shame that he never adapted from Laughable Loves, the story, The Golden Apple of Eternal Desire. Right? Yes. Which I love that story. I like the connection too. This is a little transition I've, I've engineered here. Uh, this about these two men, right? These two uh, middle-aged men who go out flirting with women, trying to pick up women. And uh, one of them decides he's going to introduce himself. I'm the director foreman, you know, and impress them by pretending to be Milos Foreman, who, of course, Brunwell worked with uh, a few times. What the first time was Foreman's first English language film taking off, which since I did just watch, I just wanted to bring it up real quick. Yes. Uh, It's not a great movie. It's uh, kind of a failed experiment for the most part, I think. It's uh, like a weird countercultural comedy. comedy. I don't even know how to explain it it's just kind of looking at hippie culture through how it affects the parents and how they kind of 
devolve into these ridiculous caricatures uh, with Buck Henry and his wife. But but it's a lot of it's very episodic. Part, yeah. But the best part, I think, is similar to you know his background with Atex and um, and Boonwell and his comedic sensibility. The best part is uh, Buck Henry is searching for his daughter. He goes into a little restaurant where they have photos of all the missing girls, all these hippie girls who have run away from home. And he sees that one of them is sitting right there at the counter. And he's like, this, you have these pictures. This, this girl is sitting right over, right over <laughs> here. And he's like, I don't, oh, I don't want to get involved. It's, it reminds me so much of the missing girl uh, oh, segment from Phantom of Liberty. <laughs> yeah. The little girl who they are looking for, even though she's right there insisting that <laughs> she's there. Yes. Telling her, Quiet, honey, we're, we're trying to. You don't love the the whole Vincent Chiavelli does a lecture on how to smoke marijuana sequence. That's, that's you know, one of those things. That just, yeah, no, that's that's to me characteristic of the whole movie of like, yeah, no, I was absolutely. just listening to your episode on Where's Papa. It has the same kind of like flop sweat countercultural comedy that doesn't doesn't feel like exactly right. You know, right, right, right. Like the people who make it at some point during the process realize they're not hip enough to be making this movie is what both of those <laughs> movies have in common. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. They're the, um, the, the, the Scorsese Richard Price. We're not Mars guys moment. Only it happens halfway. We're not countercultural guys halfway through the <laughs> Carl Reiner, Milos Forman thing. Yeah. But you can feel the carrier in that movie, though. Like you can in Unbearable Lightness of Being. Yeah. So it does have that going for it. Yes. And Unbearable Lightness of, of Being is also, he makes all the good decisions. He, he says this is a love triangle. It's about the three of them, which is different than the book, which is about individual relationships. Each chapter is about from the perspective of a character. So they it's not about the three of them at any point it's about this character then this character then this character then this character you know and he brings them all together and and produces uh the scenes are written and directed with a slowness that i think is very gives it a literary quality connects it to Kandera in some way it's not hurrying to get anywhere it's saying don't focus too much on the plot of this too you know mm -hmm. I, I just yeah. think it, it it has a lot of uh, good decisions. Oh, and it's also just uh, just to draw another connection with other Carrier work. When Sabina says, "I can't stand the pointed finger and the raised fist," right when she's saying why she doesn't doesn't like the Soviets and doesn't like radicals in any way, it's like Bouliogere decrying all of the gestures and discreet charm, where she says she doesn't like the international feminism symbol, the Black Power symbol, or the peace sign. It's the same thing, and I think that's Carrier in a lot of ways. That just that. The people who want to reduce their existence to a physical gesture that represents a political symbol is one of the most distasteful things in the world to him. I think that yeah. that's something you see, that people want to reduce themselves to their political dimension. He he really is afraid of them and and uh, sees that as a, as a destructive force, as, as a worldview that is something that he's somehow fundamentally against. Uh, I did mention that he was nominated along with Philip Kaufman for an Oscar for this film, but he'd actually already won an Oscar uh, for the short film Happy Anniversary, which he made with Pierre Atex, which was their first thing that the two of them had done together on film. Um, they made two short films and then together they uh, co-wrote five films, which Atex directed, four of which uh, were part of the recent uh, restoration efforts of a Texas films. Yeah. Uh, one of them, Insomnia, I have not seen at all. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't. 
I haven't because these films are very hard to find. Yeah. You know, I've seen I've seen all of them. Even I just watched Land of Milk and Honey for the first time recently, which Carrier did not write. It's the Carrier. Uh, it's the attacks without Carrier. Right. And it's first... and it's notably worse than the others. <laughs> it's a big old fucking mess. Uh, but the two shorts are very charming. Uh, they're very fun. Uh, just sort of exercises in, in gags and, uh, you know, kind of extended visual gags. Uh, but they led to The Suitor, the first uh, feature film that they made together, which is sort of a play on seven chances, right? The Buster Keaton film where he has to find a bride is to find a woman to marry. And I, th- I think it's less urgent in the, this film, right? There's not like a, there's not like a time <laughs> limit or, or, or a money on the line. Yeah. Or it's he basically just, his mom is getting on his dad's case to get him to do it. Right. That's, that's they basically the just think he's stakes. a loser and he just decides to go out and get married for that reason. Um, and so it sort of tracks his uh, attempts to, get women to fall in love with him even though true love is right there in front of him and uh of the obvious conceptual gags in this movie which i I kind of i kind of consider it i know it doesn't really work out chronologically but i think that these movies that they made together kind of situated between Jacques tati and fellini in a weird way you know yes it's a little more accessible and a little more open and vibrant the way that uh fellini is but yeah. also very conceptual, the way that the Tatis are very like specifically constructed. Um, but my favorite of the seemingly Carrier-inspired uh, 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 gags is the one where she is try- uh, the uh, sorry the, the the housekeeper. Yes, the beautiful Swedish, young Swedish I housekeeper yeah. uh, is trying to learn French, and she's reading from the book, and she says, uh, "The libre sont le table sur le table." And the father looks over and sees there's no book on the table and thinks she's crazy. And then when Pierre walks in and she she wants to impress him, so she throws the book onto the table and says, there is no book on the table. And he looks and sees the book is on the table. It's just filled with like great moments like that that I really enjoy. But it's uh, it's very light and very fun kind of film. Yeah, it's like an inverse of unbearable lightness in a million different ways. It's about a non-womanizer trying to meet women unsuccessfully. <laughs> it's short and brisk. It's black and white. It's got no literary quality whatsoever. It's hugely indebted to the silent shorts, as you mentioned. Attacks has has a very, uh, you know, Stan Laurelish quality to him as the sort of innocent, dopey agent of chaos you know, where he's he's sort of causing trouble everywhere he goes and disrupting everyone's life. And you say to him, why'd you do that? And he looks at you and goes, huh? That's that's what this movie is. Right, he's uh, in the lo- Keaton uh, hat lift, you know, <laughs> like. Yes. And just tons. It's just a collection of gags. It's a, you know, like a, like a, a lot of the silent films are. It's that got this very loose plot where he goes out and he's trying to meet various women. And it's an excuse to accumulate gags. And it's interesting to watch for Carrier, who enjoys silent comedy tomfoolery throughout his career, that he puts a lot of that stuff in his movies. And I think it gives him, when you get to something like Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, a sense of what small gestures will be fucking hilarious. Like Fernando Rey, who's hiding under the table when the army shows up and his hand just reaches up to grab the beef 
it's so funny and brilliant. And I think that comes from Carrier's silent film goofiness background that he knows that this will be funny to, you do it in a wide shot, you see the hand come out very slowly, you know, and, you know, then you lift it and that's funny. And then you lift up the tablecloth and it is about, he's about to get shot. He just puts the beef in his mouth to take a bite and it's going to just be killer. It's just going to be so funny. And it is. I think that you see that throughout his career, uh, a sense of, of how to write things to be staged funny too, that he gives this sense of how to write comedy for his directors in a way that, that they can stage it based on what he's written. Yeah. Something that you can see here. And this film kind of also kind of gets him into that, that sense of roles and, uh, and, the, the the gag and discreet charm with the priest who dresses as the gardener the way that he becomes obsessed with this singer who is you know all the rage of paris and uh he you know paste her picture all over his room and becomes obsessed yeah. with her and uh then tries to get to her and his ultimate disappointment in meeting her is very much based on you know something that you know we we can we thought of as one thing but is actually another and yes. kind of being disappointed with that reality. It's yeah, it's all about a character living in his fantasy space, like mm-hmm. Belle de Jour, like certain sequences in Phantom of Liberty, like all of Discreet Charm. It's about fantasy space occupying an ontological reality within a movie. That it's about a guy living uh, inside his own head and trying to enter into his dream, as what happens at the end of Belle de Jour, famously, when you try and step into your own dream, and it's unmoored from reality at the beginning when when the suitor is excited, he runs and jumps out a second story window. And it's this amazingly silly shot where he just jumps and falls like 40 feet and lands on the ground and keeps running, you know, and like climbs up his pergola and is rolling all over it and does funny little like Charlie Chaplin dances. It's just not reality, but it doesn't puncture the believability of it again. The again, the great Chuck Jones quote that's always so useful. I didn't want my films to be realistic. I wanted them to be believable, right? And early on with silent comedy, you learn how to make things believable without making them realistic. And he carries that through all of his films. Again, you know, you see in something like Viva Maria where there's gags where like they're walking through the desert and they're worried about running out of water and it's so dry and they come across a horse skeleton that's standing up, right? The horse skeleton is there standing in the desert, you know, that this horse has just died mid-step. And it, and it doesn't, you know, it's so goofy. It's so straight something out of the broadest comedy and it does little to undermine it. And I think yeah. it's an interesting comparison to something like Valmont where uh, Valmont is an interesting film to talk about in terms of comedy because it follows immediately Dangerous Liaisons, uh, which was uh, the, the Stephen Frears version, uh, which was much more popular and successful. It sort of was in its shadow and famously got like dunked in the toilet and just lost all this money because Dangerous Liaisons had been the big hit. You know, it was the deep impact to Dangerous Liaisons Armageddon is what happened. But still and- years away from Cruel Intentions. Exactly, exactly. But its sense of comedy, it's, Dangerous Liaisons, which is a movie I really like, is a Hollywood comedy. And it resolves all of its stories and presents its tone in a way that is very usual, that it turns it into a crowd pleaser. Whereas there's something uh, bittersweet and at times morose 
and absurdist and depressing about Valmont, right? It's the same comedy, but it takes away all of the Hollywood sheen, not aesthetic sheen, but narrative sheen. And it makes it a comedy that's very sad and ironic and defeatist. And that's incredibly hard to do. And you can set it next to Dangerous Liaisons and Dangerous Liaisons is a movie that go get your popcorn and soda. You're going to have a great fucking time. And then you put it next to Valmont and that's a real movie in some way. You know, you couldn't base your life philosophy on Dangerous Liaisons. You could with Valmont. There's a way of thinking about uh, truth and reality through Valmont that's not possible through Dangerous Liaisons. And I think that with Carriere, I think a lot about too, a question that I don't think gets brought up much more in terms of discussing art. I feel like it's a passe question in some way, but the difference uh, between an artwork that's true and an artwork that's false. And he's very good at writing comedy that does not make the artwork false. And you can see it back here in the Suter. Suter has a few false moments. Suter is not a perfect film. Suter is a, is a growing pains film. Yo-Yo, the one he wrote uh, a couple years later with, with uh, for attacks, is a masterpiece, is a phenomenally great film where everything Beautiful is pitch film. perfect. Yeah. Yep. And the Suter is just a lot of fun. But what it's really good at is not sacrificing its truth for the fun. You know, even as it goes to deliver a series of gags, it never becomes empty the way a Harold Lloyd or a Laurel and Hardy film, those are completely empty. They're just fun, but there's nothing about them other than the fun. And I would say the suitor manages to somehow be beyond that, you know, that there's some aspect of truth to it in a way that I think is fascinating. That's very hard to unpack. And what I find interesting is Yo-Yo comes out 65, right? The same year as Diary yes. of a Chambermaid. And so the next film that they make after- Year after Diary of a Chambermaid. Okay, so around the same time. Yeah. Uh, so the next film that he does after he's collaborated with Boonwell is uh, the egg text film, Le Grand uh, Amour. Yes. Which you can see him getting kind of more progressively kind of surrealistic with the imagery and the humor from one to the other, like Yo-Yo has that sequence where the butler takes the hidden glass out of the painting, you know, Mm -hmm. it was a very surrealist image. And then he does something that is absolutely Boonwell-esque in Le Grand uh, Amour, which I love, which is a dream sequence where, uh, once again, Pierre attacks, he's a married man, happily married man, but he's fallen in lust with his young secretary. So the way that he dreams about her is that he's lying in bed, he and his wife are in two separate beds, and as soon as he falls asleep, the bed takes off, Yes, driving down a road, not like the road in Discreet Charm, um, and he's passing guys who are like underneath the uh, the carriage of the beds, fixing them. He sees a car accident with the two beds. It's uh, so just beautiful. This amazingly, it's incredible sequence where all these motorists are lying in beds. Uh, it's brilliant, and it's absolutely a Boonwellian sort of idea. Although I think maybe Boonwell probably wouldn't have gone quite that far for a gag. Yes. Carrier was willing to do. Yes. It's it's willing to be more comedy. Well, it's funny to think about that's Great Love is 1969. So it's two years after Belle de Jour, uh, four years after Yo-Yo. But in 69, he does The Great Love, which we were just discussing. He does The Milky Way with Boonwell as well, which is uh, a, a collection of episodes 
that I don't even know how to describe. It's pilgrims it's road walking, movie, pretty much. Yeah, it's a road movie. They're walking down uh, St. James Way, uh, which is a pilgrimage route um, to the uh, Santiago de Compostela in Spain, right? And uh, and it's just these two pilgrims walking down, and the people they encounter. It's a very um, high-minded kind of movie. It's a serious comedy. It's Boonwell. You don't need me to explain Boonwell. He does Grand Amour, which is a straight comedy. He does a Boonwell film. And then he does La Piscina, which is the Jacques Deray thriller, uh, The Swimming Pool, with Alan Delon and Romy Schneider, which I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's, it's a very um, straight-ahead jealousy love triangle thriller, right? And it's just could not be more regular of a thriller. And it's also excellent in those terms. And to have somebody, if you just, again, you parse his career, if that was the only year he made movies, you might not be, he's one of the greatest all time, but you'd go like, that screenwriter, that's an incredible year for a screenwriter to have. That is, that is almost inconceivably productive year. You know, that it's yeah. really, um, and so varied, so three just incredibly different kinds of scripts, which again, reminds you of the quote of each script must be the first one, you know? The exact quote is, if you want the work to have a chance of being interesting, escaping routine is an absolute necessity. To never say, I know how to write a script, each script must be the first one. And you can just picture him that year with those three scripts, they're so unrelated to each time he's discovering how to do it within a single year. Absolutely. Um, so anything else to say about the Atex collaborate? I mean, it's, it's cool that they were both pals. I guess Atex has background in, you know, carnivals and the circus, I guess, which is another. Yeah. Feline and as an, as an illustrator of, and animator. Yeah. Yeah. So um it's just cool that that's how he kind of got started with this collaboration they're, with this friend of his. They're the most French he ever gets, you know? Yeah, he, oh, sure. uh, he, uh, he actually, there's actually a funny quote from when he was doing um, Ten Drum where he showed Gunter Grass, who wrote the novel, the first draft of the script. And Gunter Grass, uh, Gunter Grass thought the first version of the script was too Protestant and lacked courage in dealing with the irrational. In other words, it was too Cartesian, too French. Like that Gunter Grass didn't want to making a French movie out of his script, which huh. that and but the suitor is like the most French he gets like the Atax movies are the most French he is. He's very yeah. international. Gags as a with uh, bouquets of flowers and and wine and drinking too much, uh, you know, champagne. Yeah, baguettes getting broken. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. <laughs> All of that kind of thing. But mentioning Gunter Grass is a, a good lead into the next film I want to talk about, which is The Ogre, Volker Schlondorf's 1995 film. I love that you picked The Ogre instead of Tin Drum or Swan in Love or the other Schlondorfs that he worked on. I had never seen this movie and I really, I'm really into it. I'm glad you picked it. It's very, this movie had a very strange life. I picked it because I wanted to show he's still doing incredible work in 1996 you think about the people he's talking that we're talking about before pierre tax louise Bunuel, uh jacques de uh they are like 
long, even Andre Vida, they are long fucking gone by 1996. Mm-hmm. And he's still going, you know, Schlondorf starts in the seventies. He's still sort of at that era. And Louis Mao, they keep around for a long time. This film is actually dedicated to Louis Mao because Louis Mao died uh, the same year that this film was shot. Uh, who was one of his one of his good friends, and Volker Schlondorf, uh, had started out as an assistant director on Viva Maria. He had been one of Louis Mao's uh, directors. I was actually noticing when I watched Viva Maria recently that um, Boonwell's son and Schlondorf were both assistants to Louis oh. Mao on that movie, and I think Carrier might have been one too. Just the assistant director roster was like, holy shit, that's loaded with with people <laughs> on that movie. It's a shame this movie is like silly fun instead of a total masterpiece but the ogre um basically gunter grass's the tendrum obviously a a genre or not a genre a generation defining novel the movie's an incredibly massive hit in 1979 just one of the biggest and most important films of the 70s palm d'Or winner academy award winner uh for best foreign film carrier wrote that one as well and uh, Schlondorf, but they leave out the entire third section of the book. The book is three sections. And just for time, 10 drums, very long, uh, and even clocking in around three hours, um, they still had to cut a lot. And Schlondorf had always wanted to make a sequel. And so he didn't want to have to recast the actor who's the main character in the 10 drum, who's a little boy who can't, who can't grow up because he bangs on his drum and won't grow up from it. Uh, So he instead decided to find another novel about the same era and to sort of uh, contend with the same things of childhood under Nazism and growing up under Nazism because he himself had been a little boy. He's born in 1939 uh, under the Nazi rule and sort of came of age, all of his friends and everyone, his age group, had been children's during under the Nazi, had been children under the Nazis. And that's something that interested him. So he wanted to find another novel like that. Also at this point, Schlondorf's career um, just sort of, he stops being relevant in a strange way. And I think he also is flailing to get the Tendrum magic back. He makes a lot of interesting movies, but he comes out with with Coup de Grasse and the other, his first famous one. Young Torless. Young Torless. Uh, and, and Tendrum early on his career, he has a lot of success and is very lauded. He's early in his career, he's on the level with Fassbender and Herzog as far as the new German cinema directors. And I was surprised, I was doing a podcast recently where the uh, the interviewer hadn't even heard of Schlondorf, hadn't seen any of his movies. And I thought, wow, that is an incredible way to fall. You know, like I know Vin Vendors has probably assumed his his spot as like the big three of new German cinema, but there was a while there where he was the biggest of them. The 10 drum put him way above Herzog and Fassbender uh, and Wenders in terms of importance, you know? And um I think around this time, he's getting like the wrong venues for his ambitious projects. The way Handmaid's Tale was like an HBO film, you know? Yes. Well, this movie didn't get distributed in the United States until three years after it was done. It just didn't come out. And I was looking for any explanation of why that happened. Did it get bad reviews? Was it not successful? But it got good reviews. It was well-respected. It just didn't come out. 
It's just that's how little Schlondorf mattered. And it's English language. It stars John Malkovich as the uh, uh, title ogre. The Star ogre, of Dangerous Liaisons. Star of Dangerous Liaisons. One of the many bizarre castings of him as a sexy man. Also like Portrait of a Lady. Uh, one of those like, you, you find John Malkovich hot? What's going on here? He's much better as a <laughs> evil looking simpleton as he's cast in the in the ogre. And so he reunites with Carrier. The plot of this movie, there's a French guy who uh, grows up in an orphanage, uh, dedicated to St. Christopher, a Catholic orphanage. And when he's young, he's getting in trouble and he uh, prays, essentially makes a wish to uh, the statue of St. Christopher that the church will burn down, that the orphanage will burn down uh, because he hates them for the punishment. And it does. Some heating oil gets spilled and his friends burn down the apart, uh, burn down the place and his only friend dies in the fire. And it gives him this sense that for other people, fate is cruel and capricious and will hurl them into the void but it will always protect him. So he doesn't need to worry. And he's a very gentle guy who works as a mechanic who protects children and animals. He's like de dedicated to protecting children and animals. And this lands him in trouble where he befriends a young girl who wants to play with his beloved camera and fuck around with his camera. And when he doesn't uh, let this girl mess with his camera, she accuses him of something awful that's never specified. And right as he's about to go on trial for that, World War II breaks out and he's getting, given the option instead of serving a sentence of going to serve as a soldier on the front line. From there, he's captured by the Germans and a German officer befriends him because he, the German officer realizes he's very good with animals. He's a good trapper. He's befriended the blind moose that lives in the forest that everybody's terrified of, the ogre the moose ogre that is in the, that's nicknamed the ogre, which is a nickname that uh, he gets given later in the film. And he's taken to work for the German brass. And uh, from there, <laughs> further on, it's like Tim Drone, it's an epic. After he's working for a particularly insane German officer played by Volker Spengler, one of the great memorable characters in the film, he is taken to a castle that uh, recruits um, young teenage boys to become Nazis. And he goes around recruiting teenage boys to become Nazis and go to this military academy and become soldiers because he believes it's the best way to protect them. He believes that if they don't join the Nazi party, they're risking death and they're risking horrible things happening to them and going to the military academy is the best way to save them, which I think you can understand backfires on him. I think, listener, you can probably predict that this does not work out the way uh, he wants it to. But one thing that struck me this time watching it is that it, it's, it's a meeting of France and Germany. He's a Frenchman and a French soldier who goes to work for the German army. And it's like Schlondorf and Carrier. It's a meeting of France and Germany in some fundamental way. Um, this is the first time you had seen it. What are, what are your thoughts on it? What's your general reaction? Well, obviously, I love the abundance of Fassbender actors in the yes, film. Yes, we, we got, got Armin Mueller-Stahl. Spangler, Mueller-Stahl, uh, the great Godfrey Johns plays the officer. Playing a uh, non-creep. I've never yeah. seen him play a non-creep because <laughs> in his Fassbender movies, he's like 
always like a guy who wants to see your butthole. Anyway. Well, it's funny because this is made around the same time as Goldeneye, where he plays one of the villains. And uh, I was just talking to John Arminio about this. Uh, has a great moment where his plan is totally fucked because Bond and, and the leading lady have come to tattle on him, basically. And he yeah. has to completely make up this plan on the spot to cover his ass and his yeah. desperation and just franticness make him like the most interesting character in the series of bond at that moment, you know, which is something you never see in bond villains, this sudden desperation that he possesses. And I think uh, he brings the same thing to this character where, uh, you know, he's kind of more uh, willing to kind of, you know, go along with fate. Uh, but he's put in the hands of Volker Spengler playing field Marshal Goring uh, who has to calm himself down from his psychotic rants by putting his hands into a big bowl of jewels. <laughs> yes. Just, just touching them. And his costume design is unreal. It's amazing. It's incredible. He just steals the movie 100%. And I do think Malkovich is great in this film. I agree. This is the kind of role I want to see him in more than the sexy roles. But Spangler just, just owns the movie for the, what, 20 minutes that he's in it. Yeah. Uh, just as this giant brat of a you know horrible fascist monster yeah he's like one of the fucking willy wonka kids in charge of a it's great a detachment yes. of soldiers that's a great analogy um but yeah i think i kept wondering what direction this movie is going to go in because until it gets to the school to the castle uh you know it doesn't re it's very you know open and you know we, we follow malkovich from all these different uh, sort of scenarios from one yes. to another it's clearly uh, based on a, a sprawling book yeah, there's no yeah. question and it's definitely a companion piece to tin drum in that respect you know that it's the war through this almost innocent character you know that we're kind of yeah is just sort of obsessed with his own beliefs and he gets called the ogre because he actually goes out and kidnaps you know these kids and doesn't realize what a monster he's becoming to the village who, you know, have to try to hide their children from this man who's going to take them and, and then bring them, you know, to be trained in the German army. And everyone says, you know, if this, the ogre takes your child, you'll never see them again. It made me think that this is just such a more honest version of something like a hidden life. You know, it's like, if you are embroiled in this world during this event, you're going to be part of it. Like someone's going to come and take you and make you be a part of it. Yeah. Uh, and it's this horrifying idea and his, you know, and his innocence in doing it, not realizing what he's doing and how he's helping the Germans take these children is uh, it's hard to watch. Yes. There's a very subtle um, philosophical concept that I think is very carrier of how wrong resembles right. And there's almost no other circumstance I can think of than the specific circumstances of this movie in which dedicated to protecting children and animals is an evil trait, right? Mm -hmm. That if you say he's de dedicated to protecting children and animals, uh, he's an evil person, right? But it, un it unquestionably viewed historically what he's doing is, is evil. You can't interpret it any other way but it's about how you would construct a mythical creature like an ogre. The book it's based on is the Earl King, which is a, a, uh, a mythical creature that's in the woods that kidnaps children. And I think it has that, that quality of 
exactly what you're saying. You think that you would clearly know right from wrong if you found yourself in this circumstance. And the moment to me that's most shattering is he's he's rescued once the Soviets invade and are driving back the German forces, uh, the, the local concentration camp, uh, a child escapes from it. And he finds this child beaten and near death, almost freezing and brings him back to the castle, which is obviously like, that's not going to work well to bring a Jewish kid back there and try and hide him. But when the Jewish kid is discovered, the ogre has to kill the guy who discovered him, right? And the Jewish kid freaks out and is crying and is like, don't do it. Don't kill him. You're do- Stop. You're, you're doing the wrong thing, right? And I think that that's the essence of this movie is you would think you'd know exactly right from wrong in this circumstance, that right and wrong are clear. But once you're in the middle of it, things that were right became wrong somehow. And that that's really what this is about is that you are the bearer of children as you were born into. You have no parents, you're in an orphanage. Your destiny that fate has determined you be is the bearer of children as as bestowed on you by St. Christopher himself, right? And that you're going to be able to do this, but you're just in a freezing muck with no end. And at some point, you're going to freeze to death and drop the kid and he's going to die, right? That is what the reality of it is Mm -hmm. in some way. Yeah, that's why I compare it to something like A Hidden Life where, you know, a character who has this moral certainty that he's, you know, not going to be involved in this conflict. Uh, And the more honest approach of like, it's complicated. Of course, yeah. you're going to be involved. You're going to be involved in ways where you think you're doing the right thing, and it's the absolute wrong thing. I agree. It's, uh, I mean, it's a real the Armin Mueller star character, who's a uh, who's a secret. He's an aristocrat who owns the castle, and he's secretly a conspirator, an anti-Nazi conspirator. But he's a fascinating character because he's connected to a lineage of German knights and he's so furious that that the country is doomed. He has that entire country is doomed speech. Even our name will be forgotten. Its entire heritage will be wiped out, right? And he's this German nationalist in some fundamental way who's also one of the good guys, you know? And you say, I'm making this World War II movie that's about a German nationalist uh, who's one of the good guys. Right. And it's unambiguously the case. His entire sense of right is derived from German national identity, which you might recognize as the Nazis' entire sense of wrong is derived from national identity. And that way, he's only a good person because he's insistently a German who believes in Germany. Right. And he's someone who bags the, the, the ogre, the moose ogre, right? Yes. Uh, Which uh, Schlondorf's Goring is uh, furious about because he had, you know, uh, he wanted to be the one to take it. And I guess you can get a nice big metaphor for Germany and legacy and things like that through that. Um, but yeah, the fact that like, if they had done all the right things, if Hitler had done all the right, made all the right moves, they won the war. If they had dominated Europe, he would have been fine with it, but yeah. it's all, it's all a fuck up. So he's not. <laughs> yes, exactly. But he's also like, a scheming insistently anti-Nazi too, you know, like (laughs) it's very hard to identify, uh, you know, the way right resembles wrong, you know, which I think Mm -hmm. is something all of our, a lot of new German cinema is interested in 
the crimes of their fathers, that generation that grew up either during the war or right after it, and that entire, the sins of their fathers are directly, and what happened with their fathers are directly an interest in Fassbender and Helena Saunders Brahms and Schlondorf. Um, and this is one of the, the key movies for that. And it again, tying it to childhood too. Yeah, it where, takes a big risk too with the, the scientist, the, the Mangala type scientist. Played by who, Dieter Laser of Human Centipede fame. The same guy who makes right. the Human Centipede plays the <laughs> insane doctor who says the little boy's dick isn't big enough so he can't be a soldier in this movie. <laughs> right, right. And like that, I, that that confrontation of ideals in that scene too, where he's like, ah, send it back home. And they're like, are you crazy? We need as many men as we can. We need yeah. this kid to fill in the holes of our army and, you know, try to win this war for His us. testicles are, are underdeveloped and he is not hung enough. <laughs> uh, she's exactly. going to be cannon fodder, Dieter Laser. <laughs> so, yeah, I, yeah, this is a really... Uh, obviously an under a slept on movie i think yeah especially for fans of the syndrome yes and it also you know reminded me because it shifts between black and white and color in sort of a historical footage way like an unbearable lightness this is this is one of his movies that i connect it to syndrome easily i also connect it to unbearable lightness if it's not as good as unbearable lightness it's only because volker schlondorf isn't quite as good as Philip Kaufman. I think Volker Schlondorf is a very, very interesting director who I really admire, but Philip Kaufman is, is one of, is a real genius to me. Philip Kaufman is a, is a true genius as much as I love Schlondorf, but I think it's, it's easy to see that same kind of muddy, morally muddy historical drama in, in that's an unbearable lightness in this. A lot of the lessons that Kaufman, that Carrier seems to have learned in adapting uh, unbearable lightness he applies to this just as an unbearable lightness a lot of lessons he learned adapting 10 drums seem to come into play in in the unbearable lightness script and mm -hmm. it's also fascinating too they he made another movie with with schlondorf called circle of deceit which is about the war in lebanon where they filmed in lebanon during the war like as the war is going on around them they're filming there and it has that same kind of real war quality to it. This, this movie uh, wants you to give you the impression of real war in the way that Unbearable Lightness has the, you are actually there on the streets as the tanks roll in quality, intercutting the footage of, of Teresa and, and Tomas with actual newsreel footage. You know, this, this mm -hmm. wants to achieve that in the same way without using newsreel footage. It wants to give you that flavor. Um, really the only complaint I have about it is that fucking awful Michael Nyman score. It's just, it's just the wrong music. It's too, I know people love him, but it's like cheese ball epic score. I don't know how to describe it any better than that. This sort of yeah. choral and, and, uh, uh, religious music influence score. That's just the wrong note for it. You know, it's just, it, there's something about it. There's something about the music that's super duper cheesy. It's inexplicable that it took years to get distributed, but I kind of go, I wonder if it had a different score, if it would have gotten distributed right away. <laughs> or maybe, you know, maybe just the problem with Schlondorf, maybe he needed to be in Penguins of Madagascar or American Dad or some shit. And then <laughs> this movie would be considered a classic on the level yeah. of, you know. If he had, uh, yeah, turned into a clown for everyone to 
throw peanuts at them maybe <laughs> yeah the funding you needed for it yeah then i could then i could be hearing about how his cave of forgotten dreams is actually a masterpiece <laughs> if he had just been a fucking ridiculous character of himself in in public so you're going to be flying solo on this next one because i've never seen it uh i know its reputation of course it precedes it no this one we we don't need to um discuss in depth it's it's max monomore the uh nagisa oshima movie uh one of the the bad boys of new japanese cinema uh a total provocateur best known for in the realm of the senses and this is the only time carrier worked with him and this is genuinely one of the fucking craziest movies you will ever see um, it's just weird that they got together in the first place these two guys yes yes um, except that they have a similar sense of of politics, I think. You know, I think they have a similar political worldview in some way. I think Oshima is more revolutionary, but I think he's also he's also so insistently hip and cool. He's such like a young person director in some way, and Carrier feels like when young person directors want to get classy, they go to Carrier. I don't know. You're right. The plot of it is, is that Charlotte Rampling, she's a rich lady in a boring marriage and takes as her lover a chimpanzee, which just gets treated like this is the most usual thing in the world. It's like a Boonwell sketch from Phantom of Liberty extended to feature length. It's strange. I don't have a huge amount to say about it other than to say just know that he could go it wasn't just with Boone well that he went weird he could go so incredibly weird and for anybody to have this film on their resume and in their filmography is totally totally bizarre it's just it takes things it's a very matter-of-fact movie it's not overheated like three resurrected drunkards are in the realm of the senses right it's not it's not a very uh overheated movie it feels like oshima doing boon well is what it feels like to me and i think that's probably why he got carrier to write it for him uh and it's it's also it's it's the curse of the director switching languages you know where they always make their worst and weirdest movie you know they make their my blueberry nights their uh the the marjane satrapi is it called the voices is that the name of that movie mm-hmm. uh you know you know serpent's egg you know just always when when they switch languages they make their just most bizarre ill-considered tenured tone-deaf film and that's what this is i would not call it good at all i would say you should definitely see it if you have the opportunity to see it but it's of all of the movies I've just listed, it's the best because it has the best script and Carrier knows how to handle this uh, uh, in some fundamental way. He knows how to make this bizarre concept believable and dry and non-fantastical and non-winking. It's, there's never a moment that's like, get a load of how weird we're being. You know, the whole idea is that this will be treated as not being weird. And it's, and it's obviously the thematic ideas to explore how uh, the artificial artificiality of morality, like we're just talking about in the ogre, that if everybody within a culture accepts something as being a moral action, you know, as being an, an ethical thing to do, and everyone just says, oh, that's okay. 
uh, does that make it moral in some way? You know, is the is there is morality just connected to social mores in some fundamental way? Is there something that's irrevocably uh, beyond the pale? And the only way to pick that is by to demonstrate that is by picking something irrevocably beyond the pale and seeing if you construct a story in which it is treated as a um, usual acceptable thing. You know, although obviously the conflicts in it are all about this. It's a movie I'm surprised doesn't have more of a cult reputation. You know, have you, where did you first hear of it? Have you, is it something that was on your radar ever as a Carrier fan? Uh, no, no. I, I keep forgetting that he was involved with it. In fact, I uh, think I first read about it in a Toshiro Mifune biography, weirdly enough, uh, where they were just talking about like what Japanese directors were doing in the 80s. So... <laughs> That's where I heard about it. And of course, since then, know about it from Wendy Mays' episode of Pet Cinematary yeah. and uh, places like that. But, you know, it's the monkey love movie. Everyone yeah, knows. <laughs> it's also it's also very Carriere in the sense of it's Oshima coming to France and it's in Carriere's home field. This is yeah, sure. this is more a Carriere movie. It's produced by Serge Silberman, who did all of the Boonwell uh, French Boonwell movies, very famous producer, also did Ron, uh, Ran, the, the Kurosawa movie, but <laughs> Serge Silberman's like one of my other big uh, producing heroes. And then Pierre Attacks has a, has a little cameo in it, not a cameo, it's a, like a small role in it. It very much feels like they're on Carrier's home turf, uh, even just in, in tone. Uh, it's a movie that I think is is destined to be forgotten in some fundamental way there's no, there's no there's sort of no way to defend this movie except at the end of a long discussion of Jean-Claude Carrier where you've explained where he's coming from and what the ideas are behind him philosophically if you if you give it an hour and 45 minute of prep and setup you can go so then it's interesting in the console in the context of Carrier but like, if you want to see Charlotte rambling, making out with a monkey, like I can't defend that, you know, Chris <laughs> Funderburg didn't send you. That's not what I, I didn't tell you to go look this one up. And it's also not, it's not like Jennifer's Island. It's not a weird. Tanya's pu- Island. Tanya's Island. It's not a weird, puerile, oversexed, horny movie. Again, he avoids horniness. It's, 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 it's a sexy movie about her dating an ape. What am I, what am I saying? Would Where have be, we ended up here? Would it be a good double feature with Link? No, no. <laughs> it would be a great double feature with Discreet Charm. Okay. I think if you watch this and Discreet Charm back to back, you'd go, oh, Oshima's doing a Boonwell movie, I think is what you would yeah. say. Well, I'm glad to track it down in that case. Um, so the last thing we want to talk about, and this is, I guess, the one positive thing result of, of Carrier's passing recently, is that we both saw this short film recently that is the only film he's credited as the sole director. And it's this really great little film about uh, Michael Lonsdale trying to find his nail clipper in a bedroom, and that's it. Yes. And, and it's it- kind of brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, it's so short. Just go watch it. It's on YouTube. It's never been translated in English, but you don't need to understand anything. There's no dialogue that matters. It's basically just a series of people saying in French, but I put my nail clippers right here, right? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and it and it's very, it's very brief. You can explain the plot of it. I keep telling people about this movie and telling them the whole thing. And it has, and it's easy to do that because it has the quality of a good joke. 
is what I would say yeah. is this, this short is like a good joke, you know, and it, and it knows just perfectly like there's the setup, you know, you know there's an intro, there's a setup, there's a complication, there's further complication. Now you see what's going to happen next. Uh, it happens and it's great. And then there's a little twist, but yeah. it's all so small and so fragile. You know what I mean? Like it's not going to blow you out of the back of the theater the way that if I tell you a, a joke, you know, a man walks into a bar, you're not going to be like, that's the best story I've ever heard. You're going to be like, oh, I heard this fucking great joke, you know, and that's what the nail clipper is. I also love how simply directed it is. It's it's there's almost no thought to how it's directed it's like these medium wide shots the entire time where the camera's pointing at the person doing the action and it feels like a real writer's call to action about like the direction doesn't matter in a movie it feels like a writer being like the director he doesn't even fucking matter let me show you you just point the camera in the direction of the thing i've written and it'll be great it's this real it's this real like you know like a bully move for a writer to be like, you thought the director was the auteur? They don't even matter. All of these movies, forget Schlondorf, forget Poonwell, forget Jacques Deray, they're Jean-Claude Carrière movies and they always have been. It definitely has this great like feel that Carrière and Lonson were hanging out on the set of Phantom of Liberty and were just like, hey, let's stick around and make a quick movie together. You know, why yes. not? And it has that kind of level of delight and charm to it. Yes, and Lonsdale's just so perfect. You can't you can't imagine it any other actor. It's you just watch it and you're like, Lonsdale's perfect just for this. Like you just you got him and the movie's done. You know what I mean? You got the hotel room, you got the nail clipper, you got Lonsdale, my script, bang, you're it, home run. <laughs> you know? And it's it's just such a it's such a sweet little thing. And I never had seen it. I had never even heard of it. I knew he had co-directed some of the attacks movies and i know he was credited in other capacities on some films but to see something and i believe didn't he make it for the Cannes film festival didn't he make it in some context that was just like somebody asked him to do it you know i think i don't i don't know specifically that sounds right to me yeah i'm obviously not an expert on i saw it what six days ago it was the first time i saw this movie (laughs) and uh yeah but it's a real it reminds me of um he would say in seminars and screenwriting seminars, this is something that another, when he passed somebody, uh, Bruce LaBruce said this on Twitter, uh, responded to one of her tweets that he said during a screenwriting seminar, you must be able to write a feature film script about an empty room with a chair in it. And I think that's what this nail clipper is, is just you've got if you're a real writer you've got to be able to write a feature about an empty room with a chair in it and i think over and over in his career he showed that he can write a feature film script out of anything there was nothing he couldn't do it resembles rupture in that way the first film he co-directed with atex that's basically him doing gags at a desk yes and uh, chair factors into it heavily for its great ending right so yeah, there's no reason not to check this one out. Like you said, it's on YouTube and it's just a, a, a nice little thing to say. And, and it's, he has such a huge filmography. It's amazing that there's still so many that I need to see um, when I feel like, you know, I've seen so many. Uh, it's just great that he left this wealth of uh, of cinema, you know, this great length of cinema to check out. 
Yeah, no, we haven't. There's so much of what he did that we haven't even touched on. We barely talked about Vida. You know, we barely talked about Louis Mal. Um, and these are some of his most, we barely talked about Milos Forman. And these are some incredible, we didn't Carlos even mention. Carlos Sora movies that he did. Carlos Sora, Philippe Garel, who he's a longtime collaborator with. You know, he just, like I was saying, I think that there was, I look at his filmography and there was nothing he couldn't do. He was a screenwriter who, if you gave him a blank piece of paper, he could make a movie for you out of that blank piece of paper, which is uh, sounds like what every writer does, but I don't think they all can do it. Thank you, Monsieur Carrier. Uh, thank you for these amazing films. Yeah. Anything else you have to add, Chris? No, we're going to end on that. Thank you, and Carrier. Thank you for these amazing films. I agree. Great. I think that uh, I'm really sad that he's gone. Um, I really thought he was eternal, but you look and you see all of the films are still there, and they will be, I'm sure, through my lifetime.